My name is Karen Thorne. And I'm Kelly Corey. And together, we are Salt City Code. On this episode of Salt City Code today, I have a nice surprise. I have a guest host, Max Matthews, is here with me today. Hello. And our guest today is Seth Mulligan. Hi there. So, Seth, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Seth Mulligan, and I'm the managing director at Stories Lab Inc. And I'm here from the Syracuse area. Came down to see the preview of the co-works and its evolution today down in your studio, and it's been pretty awesome so far. Oh, nice. So how did you get into tech? When did well, you start? Like, how, you know, was it, right. were you talking middle school or talking high school? Yeah, so I was always like an early adopter of tech things. I can remember my very first Mac Performa 6115 CD. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And uh, enjoyed, you know, making small programs on my TI-82 and things like that. So I was always an enthusiast and uh, tried to adopt and purchase the latest tech when I could, you know, save my lawn mowing money as a teenager and put it towards some tech purchases, like uh, like my Palm Trio. That was pretty fun. And um, so I, I appreciated it most. Uh, it became more of a career inkling as I uh, started working during grad school for Apple. I was here in Syracuse, so it brought me to the region, and I worked for Apple in their retail um, during the Steve Jobs era and during the heyday of Apple retail when they were just opening stores at a breakneck pace. Just to see the power of a tech organization with incredible marketing and incredible products was pretty thrilling. But my, my, my background, my training has always been in sort of public administration, public policy. So on paper, it looks like I should have gone on to be like a bureaucrat or run a state agency or something like that. But that's where my passion started to blend is as I got into my first early career, I was working at Apple during grad school. And, and that eventually led me to economic development and running tech programs, seed funds, granting programs, innovation grants. Uh, and, and then eventually to the tech garden as an incubator director. So for me, this, the start in tech was just loving it and seeing how fun products could be and software could be and how it enhanced lives. And as a student in high school and other things, how it enhanced educational processes, being an appreciator of it and an adopter of it, and then starting to blend that into my career. Even though I was supposed to be more of a public policy guy, I found the intersection, especially in economic development and innovation programming, where tech became part of a targeted way of re rebounding an economy. It became a way that you could look at creating new wealth in cities and regions that are struggling with that. So that's sort well, of that's how I got into good. it. Well, that's kind of good. This is actually interesting for me because, you know, a lot of what we've talked about has been everybody's very technical and writing code and, you know, doing things. But, but your aspect is a little bit different. And yeah. you probably, probably, I would have to say, a lot of the people wouldn't be able to do what they're doing without sure. the things that you're doing. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean... Um, great code and great innovations of a technical nature can only go so far. You need, you know, operational support. You need funding vehicles. You need a certain appreciation of laws and, and policy, especially if it comes to things like IP or how to market into certain places. So, yeah, so I, I kind of think I bring the, the rounding out, the innovator's mindset, to, you know, to developing and making, you know, really influential, cool new things. But with like sort of that realistic approach of like, okay, well, how are you actually going to get to market and what markets and why and what is the landscape around us that is going to make that tech be successful or not. So, you know, beyond people experimenting and innovating, if it, if it boils down to becoming some sort of venture, then, you know, I think 
an early founding team is, is one that's well-rounded between, you know, the, the hacker, the hipster, the hustler, those kind of concepts. Right. It takes sort of a well-rounded team. And uh, generally for me, I've always brought sort of the a business or policy or market acumen to to ventures, even and, when it's mentoring, like at a, like at an incubator or something. Right, and sometimes I think that's even the harder aspect of it. You know, you have this great idea and you have this innovation, but you're not exactly sure how to get it out there. Yeah. You know, so having, who's going to buy it? Right. Why? Yeah. What should it be priced like? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. How large of a market is that? Does anyone care? Is this going to be something that? You can sell billions of and scale fast, or is it more targeted and a slower approach to market? And yeah, I agree. So even apps are like that. So, sure. Because like my so my capstone, um, mm -hmm. and you know what my capstone mm -hmm. is, because we've talked about it a little mm -hmm. bit. And I've had other people come to me and say, "Are you going to put that out?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm working on it." You know, and there's a few things that I'm going to be changing, but then I always get the question, "Well, are you going to charge for it?" Is it going to be free? You know, like, well, right. you know, where's it going to be? And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm like, I don't even have it built yet, but I don't know. I kind of need to see. There are a lot of archery people out there, sure. you know, maybe I'll do the, okay, this part of it is free, but if you want these premium aspects, yep. then guess what? Yeah. You know, you're going to pay this much, Yeah. you know, because yeah. I've had some archery guys say, well, it needs to be free or nobody's going to want to do it. <laughs> Depends on how bad you want to know yeah. what yeah. you're missing and what you're not missing. Yeah, so. I agree. I agree. Modeling, modeling a venture is, is, is related, but certainly a different discipline than inventing it or creating it or coding it or improving it, whatever those sort of actions might be. So that's always where I've sort of, that's how I sort of, you know, made my way into the more of a, a tech scene was from the, the modeling and the how and the business perspective. Uh, if I could do it all over again, maybe I would have taken a little less political science, maybe a few more, you know, coding courses. But even so, I think innovation comes in all flavors and it takes sort of that rounded out approach, if, especially if you're going to take an innovation and turn it into a venture. Yeah, well, but, I, you know, maybe that political science is that kind of little niche that you have yeah. that others don't. So, yeah. that, you know, you can kind of. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. That, I think I think stuff. like, you know, like appreciating pluralism, appreciating like landscapes of different opinions mm -hmm. and perspectives and opportunities is a huge crossover from politics into the tech world. So speaking of doing it all over again, is there one piece of advice that you would give to a, a startup, maybe particularly in the Syracuse area, sure. that that is tech-oriented, but, you know, from your perspective? Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not saying you need to go out and find that, that non-tech or that biz dev co-founder or something, but I guess my point would be, like, make sure you're counting on those perspectives. And the best way to count, account for and get those perspectives is network like crazy. And I know, I know myself and peers and friends and others in the region are always happy to like go for a coffee or some some are lightweight consultants or you know come down to an event at a, at a garden or a co a tech garden a co-working space wherever it might be but yeah i would say my my biggest piece of advice there max is just when you think you've figured it all out you go and ask someone else and there's more things to go figure out so it's that pursuit of getting those opinions and getting those other perspectives that are going to help you round out especially things like you know, barriers to entry or market or how you're going to build a landscape or a moat around you or how you're, you know, how you're going to price it. What are going to be your next steps as far as hires or seed funding acquisition or whatever it might be. So my piece of advice would be keep networking smartly and try to find the people you think are going to tell you something different. Try and find not the naysayers, but try and find maybe some of the realists who are there to intentionally poke a little holes at your ideas so your ideas get stronger. 
Great, yeah. I, I actually attended at the Tech Garden. It was an innovation village. And it was free to attend. And it was basically all of the companies in the area or incubators, mm-hmm. you know, that came and they were like, okay, look, you know, this is what we have to offer startups. You know, this is what we have available, types of funding. You know, if you join our space, uh, I know there's one over, I think, I want to say he's over on Fayette Street. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of what the name of it is. You know, but he was yep. a little, that that incubator was a little different because yep. it was also deals with like manufacturing mm-hmm. multiple products. Yep. I know one of their clients was a woman uh she has biodegradable like lunch bags sandwich bags yeah yeah and yeah. i Baggies think he said they use um, yeah. at su yep so yep. you know like that was that's kind of cool to see yeah that. exactly and i think you know there are there's a fabric of resources you might have to seek them out a little bit it's not like there's a one-stop shop that solves them all there are these sort of like especially in central new york you mentioned maximum what would you say here for the syracuse market it's like it's a node. It's a noted place. It's it's a more of a fabric than it is like go to this one center or you know one giant incumbent that can help you find all the pieces. So you know Southside Innovation Center, what OCC is sort of doing over I think in that West Fayette, you know area, you know co- you know co-works and uh, a variety of different, you know just there's even just companies themselves. There's I think I think a lot of tech companies love it if people are just ask for a tour. Or, Ask for, like, can I come by and see what's going on or yeah. talk to somebody? You know, I'm thinking about product management. Do you got a product owner or somebody I can talk to? Or So I think uh, it's it's a fabric. And, of course, the colleges are also huge nodes for a lot of that stuff, too, with even, you know, even, like, Lemoyne and some of the programs they host over the summer, with like StartPass and other connections and the Madden Business School. So, yeah, take advantage of that tapestry of, of resources that are around there and then, like, actively seek out those augments to your you know to your model or, or people yeah, who might augment yes. it but also like opinions and, and ideas that might augment and it i don't this is really bad because i don't remember who the guest was at the moment i'm sure kelly would know it right off the bat we had a guest on and we were talking about things like that you know finding out like what works and what doesn't mm-hmm. and i said my suggestion was if you know that you want to do something and it really interests you go to that place it doesn't matter what it is and ask them if you can shadow with somebody for a day yeah that's Agreed. the biggest thing. One or two days, even a couple, you know, if they'll let you do it for a couple of days. Yep. They had a lot of us when, like, healthcare is big for that. You know, sometimes mm. they'll say, go and shadow right. in that department first. You know, we'll set up a shadowing day for you. Mm. You're going to follow one person around the entire day to see what they do, on you know, for a day. And if you wanted to do a couple more days to really kind of get a feel of it, you could probably set that mm. up. But I think the same applies for tech. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want to be a front-end coder... Go to a couple places and say, hey, you know, can I just kind of shadow one of your front encoders for the right. day, you know, and just kind of see what they do on a daily sure. basis. Sure. Yeah. One of my favorite questions to ask in yeah. the interview is, you know, what's your day to day look like? You know, because I think a lot of times you read a job description and you go, sure. all right, I can tell HR wrote this. But, yeah, you know, yeah, what, absolutely. what's yeah. actually happening here? It, yeah. Informational interview. And that's kind of a cool process. Like, you know, uh, can I come and have an interview because I think there's a job versus can I take you out for coffee because I want to know what your organization's all about? Like, informational interviewing is very easy to do. And, yeah, it may not lead to anything, and it may not be exactly those opportunities, especially in startups, you know, things ebb and flow and change. And But, you know, that advice, that connection, that putting another pin with somebody you know and might say hi when you see them down the street, and, you know, it, it's super valuable. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> We'd like to take a minute to say thank you to our sponsor, Hack Upstate, for supporting Salt City Code. And seed funding and all that yep. things, and then you got into being the incubator operator. Right. How, how, what led you to that? Right. 
our region had two economic development organizations. I mean, there's many, right? There's some that are public. There are some that are uh, quasi-public. There are some that are people who, you know, advise on, on economic studies. There's, a, there's a, a lot of things called economic development. But as far as like business associations and sort of chamber-like commerces, there were two. There's always also been MACNI, the Manufacturers Association, where they've sort of had like, you know, the OEMs in mind. But for a while, in when I was coming into the region, the, the mid and early 2000s, there was the Greater Syracuse Chamber of Commerce and something called the Metropolitan Development Association. And I worked at the MDA, the Metropolitan Development Association. Organizations came together, their boards, their membership, their facility. Uh, and that included the, the Syracuse Technology Garden, as well as some of the programs that the MDA had put together, like the Grants for Growth Program and the Emerging Business Plan Competition. So... It was truly like a one plus one equals three. Um, I had actually, uh, you know, pursued Apple for a couple of years and then came back to join the MDA right after they had. So, you know, little interesting things like our mayor, Ben Walsh here mm -hmm. in Syracuse, was the first program leader for something called Grants for Growth. So like back in like 2004, 2005, some money that came out of this budget, you know, flowed into this region to say, we need to do tech transfer. We have all these great, you know, hubs of university knowledge. They need to, like, you know, be engaged for spinoff activity or pulling IP off the shelf or getting IB professors to, you know, to try a startup. So they put money out on the streets to say, well, it's matching funds. It's if, if, if there's some sort of applied research going on in a university, let's try and match that and bring it out into the private market. So programs like that without a facility were going on at the MDA. And then facility-driven, you know, meetings and space and a, a lot of the guest, you know, guest events that you could have were happening at the Tech Garden. So I felt really lucky. I came back to the organization at a time when they were just merged up, and uh, and I became staff at the Tech Garden and elevated over my four, four-and-a-half-year tenure to become the director there. And so I, I sort of led it from around 2012, 2013 through about 2016, 2017. So, hmm. Okay, that's interesting. It was really just that mashup of like programs that were happening in the region and space, and now they could kind of like coexist and leverage each other a little better because they were all inside one of the same organization, the same nonprofit now. So, well, on on just like a say weekly basis, sure, what, managing a startup. Yep. Director. Yeah, yeah, my managing director role, right? Mm -hmm. So after the. You know, you can't. It's a crazy thing. Like, I honestly believe this. You can't be in a startup incubator long enough before you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to go out with one of these companies. And, and that kind of was, it was never an active thing, but it was something I always felt I was going to eventually do. And, you know, I did some time with TCG Player and became more of an operations leader there. And then that led me just about eight months ago to join Stories Lab. Would you like to go from zero to full-stack web developer in 24 weeks? Karen and I did. We're graduates of the first cohort of Careers in Code, a coding boot camp also sponsored by Hack Upstate. Learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and more from awesome instructors and incredibly patient TAs. If you're ready to change your career, sign up for the second cohort waitlist at careersincode.org. You can also sign up for the Hack Up State Careers in Code monthly newsletter to receive updates, upcoming events, and job opportunities. That's careersincode.org. 
We would like to thank Syracuse Coworks as one of our sponsors, the only nonprofit co-working space. They offer day passes, monthly memberships that vary in price, and a recording booth for all your recording needs. It's where we record our podcast. Stop in and check out Syracuse Coworks, located at 555 South Clinton Street in Syracuse, and see all that they have to offer. Source Lab is uh, a small startup, I guess, sort of by, by numbers, right? We're about a dozen people. And a day in the life of the managing director is is sort of, you know, as you grow, most of the time you have founders who wear all the hats. We sort of know that cliche, right. but it's very difficult to know which hat to take off when and which ones to put down and which ones to sort of wear a larger hat, right? So it's going to become more strategy. Or are they going to become chief people who drive what product roadmaps are? Are they going to become more marketing and messengers and evangelists? So that's where StorySlab sort of was. And their founder was super busy, did everything, you know, payroll and all that stuff. A guy named Hans Fuller, my, my boss and the founder of StorySlab. So he brought me in to sort of peel some of those hats off, help him decide which hats to take off himself and right. set some business modeling and some business direction for them. So that's sort of, so my, that's a, a meta layer, right? right? What it really means is like, Making sure that people and systems and the markets and the direction and the information inside the company are all jiving, right? That doesn't mean I'm coding every day, but do we have a good agile scrum system up to keep our work organized? That's more at an operations or a managing director level. What's our pricing strategy and how do we market on the website is one thing, but then how are we collecting it and actually billing it and building repeatable billable systems so that like invoicing isn't like a 40 man hour job to like create all the invoices, right? yeah. automating, getting ready to scale, making sure you have the right systems to support your growth. So that's what I think about and work on every day is like building those systems inside a small company, trying not to spend too much on like back office and overhead activities until your product is out there and making, making revenue, but knowing that if you wait until you're like growing too fast and you're getting all this revenue and then you have all this like business debt. You've heard of tech debt, right? You kind of have like the same thing going on, you know, in your operational stack, right? right. Like, man, we are still doing HR interviewing in a shared Google Doc. Like, whew, we need candidate management tracking software. Or we're still doing annual reviews if we get to them once a year by passing back and forth a Google form. Oh, you know, it works for a while, but now when you get to a certain sort of scale, how's that going to be scalable? So that's what I deal with every day is sort of like, you know, gracefully trying to reduce frictions on the like the operational stack of a company. Really interesting hearing that because I think if you look at the tech community, there's so many companies now that claim to be a startup that have thousands and thousands of employees. And, you know, they, they're claiming it because they want to keep that culture and they want to yeah. keep thing looking at companies like Tesla that run super fast and have Elon Musk as the CEO. Right. And there's a lot of call for, you know, should he be operating like that? Um, and so it's it's really interesting seeing what Alphabet has done and, and yeah. how their CEOs have kind of split everything up and managed that. Yeah. Great to hear your perspective of it and, and trying to catch that early on enough so mm -hmm. that you don't really increase that, that business debt. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And I think a lot of times, like... You're right. The startup brand is important to have because that identifies that you're like an innovative place. You have an innovative culture. You're always thinking about what could be next. You're trying to like take down the incumbent. You're always asking like, is this status quo good enough or what should we do next? You know, shouldn't we release something maybe a little experimental and almost that we're not quite proud of yet, you know, to, to in order to test new markets. The process of innovation, you know, can't be slowed down 
by the process of building an organization. So you have to have that same like sort of nimble attitude, even though you're doing things like, oh boy, we just made our first HR director hire, or boy, we had to get our first bookkeeper in the house. And, you know, and uh, we had to actually switch to like, you know, formally writing down interviews so that people in different rounds asked, asked the same questions or didn't ask the same questions, you know, so... It's to me, that's the, the awesome challenge is like, how can you be necessary overhead that makes an organization actually better than the sum of its parts, but not interfere with the innovation cycles that make that startup or make even that much more mature innovative companies so successful by like always challenging the status quo and staying nimble and staying flexible. So, you know, easier said than done. So every day it's always a matter of like, you know, are people motivated? Are our systems informed? When do we buy, you know, this automated billing solution or this HRIS or, you know, when do we when do we improve that, that business debt and stop doing that in a manual way? Or when do we say, wow, you know, we're doing a disservice. It's always tough, you know, because right? especially in founders or early, early key employees or whatever, right. you want to be like, I can do it all. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> this is part of like the startup, you know, founder yeah. center mentality. And then coming to that realization, like I'm doing it all and I'm actually holding us back because I'm continuing to do it all. Right. Um, sometimes you need some extra help and peel, peel off those layers and so that focus can still remain in, in, on innovation. So, yeah, so I was I was awesome to awesome invite to come join the startup the, the startup scene a little bit earlier with stories lab like get back to like a, a 10 12 person startup where i just come off of like you know a tc player by the time i i, I left in the midsummer there there were nearly 300 employees you know two different sets of huge offices and so uh it was fun to get back and get more nimble and get more small and and uh and i'm, I'm happy so happy to have joined their team and looking forward to like helping lay down some tracks for some growth for them so where do you see them? How do you see them growing? Yeah. In the future. Yeah. So StorySlab is an awesome company that had seven to eight years. It was founder led and very much an intentionally bootstrapping company. Right. As soon as there were proceeds or momentum, plow that back into, you know, into the next growth over the next six years or next year. So they had a wonderful, beautiful, linear growth model. And it got to 2019 and it's like, well, what do we do? You know, we're now seven, eight years into it. Do we keep that linear trajectory? We're still going to have to invest in some systems. You know, do we take maybe some bank debt and bite off all project that'll make us grow faster? Or do we like go for like maybe venture capital and, and take a really highly scalable, you know, you know, sort of pivot upward. The right. old hockey stick yeah. starts, right? Modeling those three scenarios has been pretty amazing. I think generally for Stories Lab, our, our you know, realization is that we had more, we had more of a SaaS platform then maybe we were, were selling it as. We were sort of selling it as like, your sales team has a problem. Let us build a custom app for you. Let us build a solution and a highly consultative sort of engagement with each customer, which meant that we were putting a lot of time and, we're, and for us and for the customer, it was a project to sort of assess where are you and what do you need? And let's build this unique tool that works perfectly for you. And we started to realize like, wow, there's a lot of patterns. You know, Companies that sell this way tend to have these two or three types of UIs, for example. So the realization that we were more of a platform and we could present to a lot more customers with maybe something that was a little more off the shelf or ready to go, where there's a big difference in like, let us help you create a custom app versus join our platform and we will tailor it to you, right? Yeah. It's a pivot. It's mild, but it should allow you to do things like 
convert from onboarding over 120 days to six months to 30 to 45 days. Like, we're even talking about we have an onboarding process instead of like we're building your custom app. So that's where I think growth is coming from us, acting and feeling more like a SaaS platform, changing our marketing style to be more open and having people like inbound and sort of self-identify and raise their hand digitally. Like, I'm ready to talk to you. Yes, I would like to talk about pricing, you know, through drip campaigns and better SEO targeting, things like that. So I think that's where we'll go. We're not we're not changing the core of our product. We're not changing our stack even really at this point. It's much more of the positioning of our relationship to our customer in a way that should allow us to be more rapid and have a higher velocity of like project builds and customer engagements. I think that's so important from any aspect, right? It's not just the business side or the marketing side. It's just getting that customer feedback and it doesn't matter if you you know are are just yourself a developer working on the app or you have a team of 10 or a or a thousand you just need to get that customer feedback soon because i can't tell you how many times i've invested <laughs> hours and hours into a feature that i'm super proud of that i i release out and the users are like oh we didn't even know it was there we don't we, yeah. we don't care about yeah. it yeah <laughs> Yeah, so adoption, it, adoption, like was slow and low, and like, oh, maybe we missed a mark, or you know, yeah. But it's also important to invest early in those analytics because mm -hmm. I think there's so many times that you'll push something out there and not be able to receive that customer feedback. So many things you can learn from a customer, even if they're not engaging with you or talking with you. Just mm -hmm. what pages are they sitting on? What buttons are they clicking? And uh, there are a lot of a lot of great packages out there for mm. tracking all of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sentiment is huge. And the more you can embed sentiment into your product is even better so that you're you're not even actively asking your customer anymore. You're just being able to observe their patterns and go, they're voting with their clicks. They're voting with their way they use the platform. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's always especially challenging because some of those tools take time or investment. They feel like a distraction from like, well, couldn't we just onboard two more customers rather than like maybe pause and layer in enough hooks to have good, you know, sort of automated sentiments. Yeah. So knowing when to trigger that is, is key. And, and I think for Stories Lab, we're sort of at that point, too, where it's like, you know, watching pattern and user behaviors and knowing which features to release and which features to just leave on the shelf until maybe there's more demand. Or maybe you, instead of thinking like, so here's a great example, Max, I think some of what you're describing, like we think that, so our, our app is used primarily, our whole platform is sort of like to help the sales conversation. Like when you're sitting across the table, instead of maybe having a preloaded, you know, slideshow deck and you're sort of had to pre-guess what the customer wanted to talk about it during that sales call, you can finger paint, move quickly in between all of your products. So we always imagine, hey, you have this valuable face-to-face -face time you are sitting, think of all the money that went into just getting those two, three, four people in a room. The salesperson has been relying and calling on you and tracking you in their CRM for months. And you've been, you know, trading demos and maybe some email campaigns and that person's time, I'm sure some, you know, especially you're getting to like a VP of marketing, time is very valuable. So that face-to-face -face time at the table, boy, what a, what a golden moment. What if we had like a really quick survey tool you can ask them about their sentiment or their a future product release or a little A-B test. And we were we, we imagined you know, we could build that. We'll build especially this thing where they could call up two pieces of content and compare. And we almost wanted to like pre-bake this little A-B test pop-up. Or maybe instead 
we should make it like a form builder and the company can choose if they want to ask a survey or an NPS or a thumbs up, thumbs down or an A-B test between two things. And instead of like pre-baking this A-B product tester, maybe we spend that exact same effort and make it a five question form that they can throw into their app and pop up on certain triggers, right? So being cautious not to pre-bake a feature <laughs> is, is huge. Right. Or like thinking about it and being like, well, at its core, can we just deliver the core and maybe let them DIY it a little bit and they can use, they have a wider set of use cases. It can still do the A-B testing of like products, but it could also be NPS scores or it can also be, tell us how your salesperson was today. I mean, I think the more you can think about being an open platform that allows them with good tooling to be creative, as opposed to like predetermining their own, their creativity forum, you're, you're gonna serve yourself well. So it's a good point, Max. Have, have you seen any uh, interesting references? Because I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of tech people, when they're developing a product, they think of the end user and you know, what, how are they going to use it? But what I found interesting during my entrepreneurial journey was the person you're selling it to is often not the person who right. is going to use it. Right. And so I'm curious to see if you have any, any stories or anything that sure. you've adapted because I think the person who's writing the check and the person who's using the software tend to be very different. Absolutely. It, uh, it goes back to like toys and cereal boxes, right? The, the, the parent buys the cereal, but the kid is the consumer of the cereal. So do you put toys in there so that the seven-year-old tugs on mom's, you know, you know, side until she buys the cereal? Or do you market how healthy it is and how much of a well-balanced breakfast so that mom feels good, you know, buying it for their for, you know, child? So that dilemma is, is pervasive and super challenging. But I think the the what you what you need to think about. So I can speak to it in this example. Recently, we had sort of an idea. Our system, like many platforms, has sort of like an end use case and then like a content management system or the web platform, right? right. The part in the cloud that controls it and then like its end use. We always started our demos with the end use. We always went right to that app because it's beautiful and it felt great. And you wanted to show how you could finger paint like a salesperson. But the VPs of marketing... Their job is like, how much traction am I getting on my content? And why am I having poor adoption on this website portal we just released six months ago? And, you know, they're, they are concerned. They, of course, it has to be something the salesperson wants to pick up and use without a lot of training. But it didn't align with their initiatives for the year. And it didn't align with their pain points. So... No one needs to be a charlatan and like have an answer or a spin, you know, for every right. every possible yeah. user case scenario. But you really need to think about if what I'm building doesn't align with their initiatives over the next six months to a year, I'm probably never going to get on a budget. <laughs> I'm probably never going to get a purchase order generated. And at the same time, that answer is going to probably be up to two, three, or four different... I mean, unless you're really just making something like a casual game for, like, you know, Joe Consumer, and you can narrow down your demographics, chances are you're selling to two or three different people inside an organization. And you need to make sure that you're, you know who you're about to engage with your marketing or your sales conversation or your website pages, and you have landing pages for them that speak to them and landing pages for them that speak to this audience. Uh, and you need to anticipate those questions and be able to sort of, like, 
Again, it's not it's not like snake oily. Oh well, for these people over here, pull the wool over their eyes. We'll tell them this. Yeah. It's much more like literally. If you can't justify having the value for two or three of those audiences, you have to think more widely about your product development and what you're offering. And I'll add that you're never you're you're very rarely going to be able to talk to all three of them uh, concurrently, right? It's usually a sequential approach. Like, well, if we penetrate and talk to the vice presidents of marketing who care about content, we got to at some point we're gonna have to flip the demo and say, listen, could your could you see if your sales team would join the next demo? Because if they don't want right. to adopt it, we yeah. probably shouldn't talk any further, right? So it's also that daftness of knowing when and how to like make sure you get in front of all audiences because most decisions in a company are made by at some level of a committee, right? Whether they come in the same room and vote once a month and act like a committee or whether they're a committee that emails each other through a bunch of reply alls throughout the month. They're acting with like that multi-influence committee kind of mindset. So my, my, my word to startups or innovators out there is... Make sure you honestly are lining up to several value statements across the wider interpretation of who your customer is. And I think that's a, a challenge with innovation sometimes is you you are in, innovative, excuse me, <laughs> you are you are pushing the envelope. And yeah. when they try, uh, you go into a company, you go, hey, imagine if, if you had this app, imagine yeah. if you could. And the they go, okay, but what else are you like? Sure. You know, I have check boxes that I need to meet. And you're going, yeah, well, we check most of those boxes, but look at all the other things they do. And, and the company will go, but those aren't check boxes, so we don't care. Right, right. It's not on my priorities. That's not check boxes I'm really all that interested in. <laughs> and, and it's 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 tough because you get wrapped up and excited about your own yep. product and what you're yep. building. And I think it's important sometimes to take a step back and go, all right, but what are your check boxes? Because if I can't check off those boxes, it doesn't matter how many cool things yeah. I, I have in my app. You know, I, yeah. I yeah. need to check off those boxes. So yep. purchasing or whoever you're talking to yeah. will go. Can actually buy it. Exactly. Who can actually finish out the, the contract or what have you. And, and not only is it like that checkbox of like, what do they need to know and, and who needs to know it? But it's also like, who are you really competing with? Like, very rarely is it a direct competitor kind of thing. You know, there, it's always sort of a subtle nuance of where, well, we are kind of, like in our case, we're kind of like CRM in that, like, we we help you identify critical sales conversations that have to happen. Uh, we're kind of like content management because, you know, your website's powered with all these brochures that go to the right URLs, but we want to bring them down into like, you know, the, the around the table of a sales conversation. Right. So, so our biggest competitor is not like, oh, another company that, in, you know, enables outside, you know, sales conversations. Our biggest competitor is like, yeah, well, we have a, a really strong LAN network that's work, you know, worldwide company. And between every laptop out in the field that has a, a wireless air card and our internet LAN portal to save them all, like we got it covered. Like it's you're, you're often fighting just the incumbent systems, which, by the way, they hung their hat on a year or two and going like this is going to be the greatest thing. Right. So it's it's uh, it's that inherent momentum that's already there, that incumbent, that sort of comfort of being with their incumbent technology that you are often fighting. So that's, there's the check boxes as you described perfectly of who needs to know what and what, what really resonates with them. And then also in a more broad sense, like who are you really competing with? You know, you, it's not often like I got to get out in front of them because some other app that does a somewhat similar thing is going to scoop them. It's like, no, whatever they've already been getting by on for the past three years right. is really what you have to be better than. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which makes, you know, a complete sense. I don't know how many times, you know, you try and go do something, even 
but even in just a simple interview, you know, you're not going to go in and talk to one person. You're mm. going to go in and, yeah. you know, you're, and, and depending, you know, like if you have, so you go in for the first interview and it might be one or two people. And if they do a second round of interviews, it could be a completely set of whole, of new people, yep. or it could be, you know, someone from the first interview and then other people from the, you know, new people. Yeah. So yeah. you kind of have to tailor that to everything. Sure. To everyone. Yeah. You know? uh, yeah. Just the basics of like, who's my audience? What do they care about? You know? Are there people who are here from the last time who can carry information on? Do I have some sort of like, you know, like internal champion who's got continuity across this process? Or is it really like different audiences that I have to flip a, a new value statement to each time? Yeah. Whether it's selling yourself sort of through a, through an interviewing process or selling your product. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's humming after those right And I think right there, there are steps you can do on to kind of bookend that process. You know, check out LinkedIn before you go have a meeting, sales interview, whatever. Know that you're talking to, you know, the head of HR versus a developer versus whoever. Um, but then also on the flip side of that is after you have that call, debrief. Even if, if it's just an interview, write down notes of what went well, what didn't go well. Or if it's a sales call, you know, go to another colleague and go, all right, here's where we're at. Here's what I got from this. Because that documentation is so important to have in uh, your CRM and, and to keep that, you know, mm -hmm. sales relationship alive. Or even after an interview to go, all right, what can I do better for the next interview? But also, what should I not repeat myself on if I do get to the next round of interviewing? And, you know, we hear about tech documentation all the time, but I think that it's it's so important to just document what you're doing day to day. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. keep that knowledge thread alive with good documentation. Absolutely. I, uh, I've i enjoyed the conversation. I, I can't think of a lot. Um, I'm, I'm happy to have anyone who reach out about what we do at Stories Lab or learn more. And Where can I'm they always find you? Open. Thanks so much. www.storieslab.com. Yeah, check out our site. See, we have a free, you know, we have free demo demo app that everyone can install on, on all, all major tablet platforms, Windows, Android, and iOS. But beyond that, like, you know, stop by. We're, we're right in the corner of Army Square, um, the Mill Pond Landing building, and we're close and we're fun and we love giving little tours and demos. If you would like to follow me on my personal learning curve journey, my website is kethorn.com, Instagram, Karen Thorne, Twitter, kthorn, and email, contact at kethorn.com. Also, be on the lookout for JS Web Development, LLC, as I'm starting my own business. Twitter and Instagram are jswebdev. I'm working on a website that should be up soon, and that's jswebdevelopment.com. You can always email me at jswebdevelopment at gmail.com. You can keep up with Kelly on Twitter and Instagram at kelly2earth and visit my personal website at kel.dev. Together, we are Salt City Code. You can follow along with the podcast at Salt City Code on Instagram and Twitter. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach out to us at saltcitycode at gmail.com. And remember, always, always keep, keep it salty. salty.